Let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us through your word. I thank you that your spirit has given me this word to the Apostle John to write for us. And thank you that through the reading of this we can see Jesus and that we can appreciate him, uh, we can believe in him and have eternal life. And we pray that your spirit will be leading us now uh, to be just doing that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was the evening of Easter Sunday, the first Easter Sunday. The disciples were up in a locked room, hiding in case the Jewish leaders who recently had their master crucified would now come after them as well. No doubt they'd been talking about the things that had gone on that day, about the women who had gone to Jesus' tomb only to find it empty, what Peter and John had seen in the tomb, the linen cloth which had been around Jesus' body still there, and the napkin on his head still there. John had seen that and believed that, that Jesus had risen. The others, not quite so sure. Though none of them had really understood that according to the Old Testament, Jesus had to rise again. And then there was the report from Mary Magdalene. She said that Jesus had met her. I have seen the Lord, she told them. But had she? I mean, there was evidence mounting up, but, but how reliable was Mary anyway? Maybe she was a bit unstable. Maybe she made a mistake. Maybe the grief was all too much for her. Well, in the middle of all these things, something happened to put it all together. Verse 19 of chapter 20. There they were on the first day of the week. Doors locked. Jesus, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Right, one moment they're together, alone, the door's locked, and the next moment, there's Jesus, standing among them. The doors are still locked. And there he is. How would you feel if you saw your dead friend standing in front of you? You'd be a bit surprised, wouldn't you? Right? In fact, you'd be, you'd be shocked, but, but it would make sense of the empty tomb. It would make sense of the grave clothes. It will make sense of Mary's testimony. It will make sense of what, what Jesus said before he died. And it would make sense of the Old Testament prophecies if the disciples had understood it at that stage. So maybe I shouldn't be quite as surprised at seeing Jesus as I would be at seeing my dead friend. And I guess the disciples would be a little bit less surprised than they should otherwise have been because, well, they've seen something like this before, haven't they? Just a few weeks earlier, Jesus had brought Lazarus to life again. He'd been dead for four days, yet this was different. Lazarus came out of his tomb with his hands and feet bound, his face wrapped in the cloth. Jesus left it like a butterfly out of a cocoon. Lazarus went back to living a normal life and Jesus seems to be able to materialize at will. Jesus' resurrection was very different from, what should we call it, resuscitation of Lazarus. But at least the disciples, unlike the modern skeptics, knew that if God created everything, if he is the one who gives life and takes it away, then, then he is perfectly capable of raising the dead. 
And in spite of all that, though, their first reaction, I'm sure, would have been shock and fright, wouldn't it? And in fact, actually, Luke tells us that is the case. Now, they thought Jesus was there. They saw they were seeing a ghost. But anyway, Jesus stands there, and he says to them, Shalom, peace be with you. And then the next thing he does in verse 20 is that he shows them his wounds. He shows them his hand and his side. That's interesting, isn't it? Because you would have thought that all the wounds would have been healed in a resurrection body, wouldn't you? And it would seem that the rest of Jesus' wounds have been healed. He doesn't come with his back bleeding from the flogging or his brow scarred from the crown of thorns. But, but Jesus' wounds in his hands and his side where, where he was nailed, where he was pierced, were, were still there. Perhaps they're no longer handicaps, but trophies. Ever-present reminders that he was pierced for our transgressions. Ever-present reminders that he is the Passover, Passover lamb whose side was, spear was thrust in his side and blood and water came out, but none of his bones were broken. Ever-present reminder of the, the pain and suffering he went through for us. The price he paid to, to pay for our forgiveness. And so an ever-present reminder for us to give him praise. For when we stand in heaven, when we sing our never-ending praises, we'll be singing hallelujah to the Lamb who was slain for us. And even here, in a world of suffering and pain, they remind us that our King, the one true King, is not aloof from us, he is the king who is known by his scars. They are an ever-present reminder to us that this king is not out of touch with his people. He knows our pain. What we go through, he understands. Jesus is alive, but he hasn't forgotten the cross. He shows his disciples his wounds. And when they see and examine his wounds, they are convinced that he is no ghost. This is really him. And their fear turns to joy. Continuing verse 20, it says that the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Our translation is probably not such a good translation because it kind of like understates. You know, the disciples were glad when they saw them. Oh, nice to see you. I'm glad to see you, Lord. You know, kind of thing. <laughs> it's, it's a bit more like they're, they're overjoyed. They're, they're happy. Okay? The Lord, their master's back. The one they thought was lost and has returned. Their, their hopes for the kingdom, which were, which were dashed, is now raised again. But, but not only raised, but, but confirmed in the strongest possible way. Jesus has risen. And his disciples are very, very excited. So excited that they could have missed the significance of Jesus' greeting earlier. And so he repeats it in verse 21. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. Shalom. If he'd said it just once, we would have said, Ah, look, that's just a normal Hebrew greeting. He's saying hello. You know, shalom. But he says it again. To emphasize its significance. For shalom, peace, that's the term that 
signifies that perfect well-being that characterizes God's people in the end-time kingdom. True shalom is when God's people are living at peace, that is in right relationship with God, with each other, with the world around them. It's when we have God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule. That was what was lost when uh, humankind rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. Because of our disobedience, we fell under the curse instead of the blessing. We lost our peace. We lost our shalom. And out of the garden, we're kicked. That was lost at a much smaller scale when, when Israel was kicked out of the land due to the exile. Also because of their sin. But now, in his death and resurrection, Jesus has brought in the kingdom and made shalom possible. He is the one who brings in the true peace. He is the one who will bring in the new heaven and new earth, the whole new creation, where once again we will be God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule, in right relationship with him, with each other, and with the environment around us. His death has made it possible. His resurrection guarantees its certainty. And so the first thing he says to his disciples, peace be with you. Shalom. And then he says something else that's Pretty stunning, I think. Second half of verse 21, he says to them, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now, all through John's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is sent by the Father. Over and over again, we show that he's aware of that. and He's on a mission. In fact, you ask what the word mission means. Missio is a Latin word, means sent. To send. Jesus was sent by the Father. What was he sent to do? Well, chapter 3, verse 17 says, God didn't send his Son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He's on a mission to rescue the world. And now Jesus, in turn, is sending his disciples. They would be apostles. The word apostle means the sent one. They would have special authority. A special commissioning from the risen Christ. They've seen the risen Christ. He has commissioned them in a special way, given a special authority to them to continue his work of saving the world. And they're going to do it not by dying for sin and rising again, but explaining, proclaiming, ex- uh, helping people understand the, the, the gospel through which sins are forgiven. And just as the Father who sent him was always with him, Jesus would always be with his disciples by his Spirit. And so he symbolically gives them the Holy Spirit in anticipation of Pentecost. Verse 22. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. These apostles, these special people whom Jesus had chosen, He gave them the right to speak for him with regard to forgiveness. If you forgive the sins of anyone, Jesus said, they are forgiven. If you you withhold forgiveness, they are retained. Now, it doesn't mean they can just simply go around randomly say to people, oh, you know, I like your face. Okay, your sins are forgiven. Oh, I don't like you. I can't forgive. No, God is not forced to do what they want. No, 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 no. Think about this carefully. Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. Forgiven by who? By God, isn't it? 
If you retain or withhold the sins forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Withheld by who? Withheld by God. Right? That is, the apostles were special because what they would do is in fact mirror on earth what God was doing in heaven. Mustn't think of them as causing God to act in forgiving sins, but rather authoritatively declaring to the world whose sins were forgiven and whose wouldn't be. Whose were forgiven and whose were not. And what they say, guarantee you get it right. Jesus' guarantee. How do we know they'll get it right? Look at the context. Jesus has just symbolically given them his spirit. And why does he link those two things together? Remember back before his death in John 16, the night before he died, Jesus promised these same disciples that the spirit would lead them into all truth. The spirit would lead the apostles to a right understanding of whose sin it is that is forgiven. That is how they'll be able to know and to make that declaration. They'll be able to define Whose sins are forgiven, whose are not. And we see this in action a few weeks later, when Peter, Pentecost, proclaims the forgiveness of sins. How does he do it? He proclaims the gospel. He proclaims the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, and he tells Israel to repent, to turn away from their rebellion, and to trust in Jesus, their king, and if so, their sins will be forgiven. He says, repent, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who did that were indeed forgiven. How do we know? Because Peter said they would be. And Jesus says they will be, if Peter says so. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. See, Peter was the appointed apostle of Jesus. Spoke on behalf of Jesus. Spoke on behalf of God. Now, who speaks for God today in deciding whose sins have been forgiven? Well, it's not you or me. It's not the priest. It's not the Pope. It's certainly not the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's still the apostles whom Jesus appointed, isn't it? Sure, we don't have them here in person, but we have their writings. The Spirit of Truth who led them into all truth has led them to give us their teachings in the New Testament. See, when you look at the New Testament, you can say, on the one hand, this is the Word of God. Right? Inspired Word of God, breathed out through the Spirit. Yes, it's the Word of God. Or on the other hand, you could say, these are the words of the apostles. These are the apostolic teaching. Yes, that is right as well. Just like in the Old Testament, you can say, this is the Word of God. Or you can say, this is the Word of the prophets. True. Who speaks for God to this today in deciding whose sins are forgiven? Well, still the apostles, not, not only in person, but, but in the scripture, in the Bible. On the one hand, you could say God speaks for himself in his word, that's right. On the other hand, you can say the apostles speak on his behalf, and that's also right. Because they are the appointed, authoritative messengers of Jesus, and Jesus has guaranteed by his spirit that they will get it right when they proclaim who receives forgiveness. Their definition would be correct. So if you want to know if you're forgiven, what do you do? Go to the New Testament. Look at the apostolic testimony. If you're, are your sins forgiven or are your sins retained? And the witness of the apostles in the scripture is, is unanimous. Those who believe in Jesus, who trust him as their Savior and Lord, they are forgiven. And those who don't, 
their sins are still there. Their sins are still retained. Their sins are, forgiveness is withheld. They're still carrying it on themselves. Apostle John himself wrote in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who rejects the Son will not see life because God's wrath remains on him. See, if you believe, if you trust in Jesus, then you have life in his name. You've got the forgiveness of sins, you've got a relationship with God, you've got a home in heaven, you've got the new heaven and new earth, the shalom waiting for you. You'll be God's people and God's place under God's blessing and rule. But if you reject Jesus, then your sins are on your shoulders and you can expect to face God's wrath. I didn't make that up. I don't decide that kind of thing. That is the testimony of the apostles. And the apostles' testimony is backed up by Jesus' guarantee. So it's a testimony that you can believe. But there was a disciple who didn't believe at first himself. Now, he wasn't there with the others when Jesus appeared. He was, he was missing from the gathering. We don't know why he was there. Maybe he had a very good reason. So you never skip church, do you? You never know what will happen, right? Okay. Anyway, he missed out. He missed out on seeing the risen Jesus. And so he heard the news secondhand. Verse 24. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I see his tough-minded character, empiricist of the first century, or is he just stubborn? Whichever way you look at it, he did not trust the witness of the others, did he? Until something changes his mind. Eight days later, verse 26, the disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. This is a, is a virtual rerun of what happened last week. All right? This time with Thomas as well. I'll come back to church next week. We'll do this whole thing. No, I'm just kidding. All right? The risen Christ materializes in their midst. Again, offers the greeting of peace. And then he turns to Thomas. And it seems that even though he wasn't there when Thomas made his skeptical little speech, he knew exactly what he said. Verse 27. Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Do not disbelieve, but believe. I know some of you, some of you use the... Uh, NIV at home. Uh, earlier on, I think the NIV was better than the ESV. We're talking about glad. Be, uh, so the disciples were glad, and I think NIV has got they were overjoyed. I think that's better. But here, if you use the NIV, it says that they were doubting. Do not doubt, or do not be doubting, or something like that, which is not quite right. ESV is better. Jesus, Jesus doesn't say stop doubting. He says stop unbelieving. Don't disbelieve. Stop being faithless. See, it's not a question of Thomas being a, a believer who's struggling with doubt. Most believers struggle with doubt at some time or other. Thomas wasn't a doubter. He's not doubting Thomas. He's unbelieving Thomas. He doesn't believe. Jesus didn't commend Thomas for being tough-minded. He reprimanded him, ticked him off for being such a cynic. Hey, Thomas really has got no excuse, does he? 
He had the Old Testament prophets. He had the words of Jesus himself who predicted he would rise. He had the empty tomb which had been guarded by Roman soldiers. He had the eyewitness evidence of Mary and the other disciples. He had no excuse for his lack of faith. What's wrong with him? Jesus said to him, Do not be faithless, but believe. And friends, actually, you and I have no excuse either. We have the Old Testament prophets. We have the words of Jesus himself who predicted he would rise. We have no reason to doubt the historicity of the empty tomb. Even Jesus' enemies at the time acknowledged that. We have the recorded eyewitness evidence of many who saw Jesus alive, who ate with him and talked with him and touched him. And In fact, even better than Thomas, we know they must be reliable because many of them even died. Spilt their blood saying that their testimony was true. Friends, like Thomas, you and I have no excuse for lack of faith. What's wrong with us if we don't believe? I'll tell you what it is, it's called sin. Jesus says, do not be disbelieving, but believe. Well, at that point, Thomas did believe. This man, who was the most cynical, number one skeptic on meeting the risen Lord, actually became the first one to recognize him for who he truly is, at least as far as we know. Others knew that he was the prophet like Moses whom God had promised, and yes, he was. Others knew that he was the king, the Messiah whom God has promised, yes, he was. Others realized he was the son of man, the one who will rule the nations, yes, he was. But Thomas realized that Jesus was even more than all that. Suddenly all the pieces fell together. Everything Jesus said and they just clicked. You know, way back at the beginning of John's Gospel, John tells us that Jesus, well, what does he say? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then later on it says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So we, from the beginning of John's Gospel, we have known Jesus' identity. We know that he is God made flesh. But here, finally it is recognized by someone other than Jesus himself. Here at this very climax of John's gospel, here is the conclusion that, jo that the, the gospel has been leading up to. Verse 28, when Thomas sees him, he says, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas realizes that this Jesus, this Jesus whom he had walked with, he had talked with, he had eaten with, that he had spent the last three years with, was none other than the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of all, the only one to be worshipped and adored, and he was a man who had died and risen again. Now that's beyond understanding, isn't it? Thomas couldn't understand it, but he knew it was true. And in the face of the risen Christ, his skepticism melted away, and he acclaimed him, my Lord and my God. You know, friends, according to the Da Vinci Code, it was the Council of Nicaea under Constantine in 325 A.D., 
which was responsible for making Jesus, who until then was recognized simply as a man, a mortal prophet, into God. But that's not what the evidence says, is it? The New Testament writers again and again show us that Jesus is God. The early church worshipped Jesus as God, and we have that from the church fathers on the one hand and hostile Roman writers on the other. And right here in this passage we see that Thomas came to this conclusion on the very first Easter Sunday. That's a long, long time before 325 AD. How does Jesus respond to this acclamation? Years later, when Thomas tried to worship an angel, the angel said, No, 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 worship God alone. When the people of Lystra tried to worship Paul and Barnabas, they said, No, stop, stop, we are just men like you. How does Jesus respond when Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God? Verse 29. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Jesus accepted his acclamation. Which would have been blasphemous if he wasn't God. But he was. And he said, You only believe because you saw. But blessed are those who have not seen. Those millions and millions more people down through the ages who believe without seeing Jesus physically. People like you and me, who would rely on the eyewitness evidence of the disciples, evidence that is reliable, who will read or hear of Jesus through these apostles, these ones who were sent out by Jesus himself, through their writings inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's guaranteed correct by Jesus himself. And we would be moved to faith by that same Spirit working in our hearts. And so by His Spirit, through His Word, the risen Jesus also meets us and says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. You see, for those of us who have believed, who have believed this message, then... Jesus says we are blessed. We will enjoy that ultimate well-being under, under God's favor. Experience the shalom of the kingdom of God for all eternity. That we will be God's people and God's place under God's blessing and rule in his new world. When sin is taken away and we do live in perfect relationship with him and each other forever. Jesus hasn't appeared to us personally like he did to Thomas. But he doesn't need to. It's for people like us that this Gospel of John, this biography of Jesus was written. And through it we have access to Jesus. We are able to perceive who he is. He is God made flesh. We are able to perceive what he has done. He has died for our sins and risen again. We are able to perceive the signs that point to his identity. We don't know everything there is to know, but we have enough to trust him. And if we trust him, we have eternal life. That's what John says in the last two verses in our chapter, verse 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe, that you 
may believe, like Thomas, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Do you trust him as your Savior who died for your sins in your place? Can you say with Thomas, bowing before him, my Lord and my God? If so, then blessed are you who have not seen and yet believed. But if not, then hear the words of Jesus. Do not be disbelieving, but believe. Finally, let me remind you about what Jesus said to his apostles. As the Father sent me, I send you. Father sent Jesus to save the world. His mission was to die for our sins, to rise again, to restore humankind to relationship with God. Jesus sent the apostles. Their mission was to define, to proclaim the message of what he had done, to put it out, write it out, to, to proclaim it at first regeneration so people can believe and have eternal life. Well, Part of their work is done and part of it's not done yet, isn't it? We don't have the authority to define as God's spokespersons whose sins are forgiven and whose aren't. But we don't need to. The apostles have done that. It's already clear. Our role is just to continue to proclaim that gospel. That's the part that's yet unfinished. There are many, many people all over the world who have not yet received the gospel. There are many people who have not yet received that apostolic message that through Jesus their sins can be forgiven. And Jesus has commanded us to communicate that, that news of his death and resurrection in all the world, to make disciples of every nation, proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Yes, he sent the apostles. But in a lesser way, we, we continue that work of pro proclamation. Is that, is that a priority for us? To what extent are we concerned as a community to bring the good news of Jesus to those around us? Or, or to what extent have we kind of like lost sight of that and got focused on lesser things? Friends, we are on a mission. There is work to be done. Now is not the time to lose the plot. Mustn't that petty little things get us down? Mustn't that lesser things distract us from the big goal? We are on a mission from God. He has given us His Spirit. He has given us His Word. We are part of that process of continuing on from where the apostles left off to take the gospel to every nation. A mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to teach them to obey everything he has commanded. May God give us that desire and the strength to fulfill the task that he has set before us so that more and more people can bow before Jesus and say to him, My Lord and my God.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that you have indeed raised Christ from the dead. We thank you that you have done that in fulfillment of prophecy from years past. You've shown your faithfulness in that. Thank you that the Lord Jesus himself has spoken about his resurrection. Thank you that we have the testimony of the apostles and that that testimony is guaranteed by your Son himself. And thank you that through them we know whose sins are forgiven and whose are not. And we thank you that we can have assurance of the forgiveness of sins by faith in him. Father, as you have given those apostles that that work of declaring that forgiveness, we know that we, in a lesser sense, continue on that work by Proclaiming what the apostles have taught us. Continuing to take that apostolic gospel message to all the world. And we pray that you help us to do that. Help us not to get distracted. But we're able to see clearly what our mission is. And help us to be people who continually push outwards. That we might see People responding to Jesus, falling at his feet, recognizing him as Lord and God and being blessed because they have not seen and yet believed. We pray for those among us here tonight who haven't yet believed. Please help them not to be disbelieving. We pray that hearts that have been blinded by sin will be opened up by your Spirit. Enable them to see Jesus by your Spirit, in your Word, and to fall before Him as well, acknowledging Him as as Lord and God. We pray all these things for the sake of Jesus and for His glory, and in His name. Amen.